Hi everyone and welcome to Cooking Goals. You're listening to The Cooks. And here we talk to motivated people who are actually doing something, following their passion, how they got to where they are and their goals for the future. The aim of this podcast is to inspire people to create goals for themselves, to push towards and surpass them. Whether it be small goals like running a four minute kilometre or big goals like owning a home, I want this space to be somewhere people can come for inspiration, to listen in on a great conversation, hopefully learn something and in the process create goals for the future. Today we talk to Brooke Clinton, founder of Capital Scraps, a curbside collection and composting service in Canberra, Australia. How are you, Brooke? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks for having me. No, thanks you for coming. So you did say a little bit cold today uh, in Canberra, but it is the middle of summer, so um, quite funny there, yeah. Yeah, I can't predict it. <laughs> I, um, I always start the podcast by telling the listeners how we met, which is only... Uh, less than five minutes ago. So I was given your contact through Chelsea McLean, who's been a previous uh, guest on the podcast. And I think she may have done maybe an interview or a write-up of you on the Biobag Australia page. And that's how she came across to you. But yeah, uh, your your name was sitting in my inbox and I, I had to reach out. So um, thanks again for coming along this morning. Yeah, All no this worries. afternoon now. Yeah, gee, it's just ticked over. Um. Now, I'd like to begin today just by getting to know you a bit more, Brooke. So can you please tell the listeners uh, about yourself? Sure. So my background is in science. I um, did a PhD quite a while ago now, um, and it was in kind of um, equal parts biochemistry and microbiology stuff. It was in enzyme discovery work um, and specifically cellulase enzymes. So they're the... um, little micro machines um, that carry out a lot of the work in a compost heap. So yeah, it's very, it's actually very relevant to what I'm doing now. Yeah, so cool. And I know that, you know, I've seen plenty of people say, oh, you know, it's the microbes who do this, but, you know, we can't see them or a lot of people just go, that's a bit of a a scientific word that they kind of just, um, you know, brush over. They don't really know what that means. Could you, um, could you explain that a little bit more for the listeners? Yeah. Um, the, the microbiology side of it is really, really fascinating. And I know that there are, there seems to be a bit more people just in the general population or definitely in the kind of permaculture world that are um, getting their heads around the whole situation with um, bacteria in soil and in compost. Um, but it's um, a lot of the kind of public education that you'll see about composting might mention the bacteria, but it tends to be pretty oversimplified because it's an amazingly complex system when it comes to compost, especially if you're composting food waste because your feedstock's quite um, has a lot of variety in terms of um, nutrient levels and composition and different macromolecules and things. And so, yeah, it's this big kind of um, complex soup that can support a whole lot of different species. Um, and we're talking about potentially hundreds of thousands of species all mixed up together in there and some of them get along with each other and some of them don't and so there's like competition but there always also be some symbiosis and it's really dynamic as well like you've got to like compost is a process of, tra- of transformation and that's what the bacteria and the fungi and the other like arthropods and other things are doing so everything's changing all of the time and you kind of you can have lots of little different micro environments within one big compost heap so yeah there's 
there's definitely a lot going on and there's a lot that hasn't been described by science. So we kind of, it's always the way when you do a PhD, that one of the biggest things you learn is how much you don't know. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's kind of fascinating to think about exactly what's going on in there. Yeah, it sounds like a big, a big community of, you know, microbiology and then they have the little you know this is this suburb and this is this postcode and they all throw out the whole you know compost heap and then you know like you said you know they could fight and have a bit of a war or they might you know uh, get together and and work and work to try and I guess you know facilitate that transformation phase of the food waste into compost um so when they're going through that phase are they is it basically them eating the food and and pooing it out into compost or is it like what in terms of worms or is it, is it uh, dissimilar to that process? Yeah, yeah, I guess you can kind of, you can kind of call it eating, but it's more kind of direct chemical transformation. And, and some of that is, is carried out and that the oxygen is really important as well. So what the oxygen is doing in the system, because that will actually help transform some of the materials. It's not just there to keep the life happy. Um, so yeah, you've got it. You, you want to think about it in terms of the chemistry and the biology at the same time, and then there's like some biophysics that comes into it, and <laughs> as well. Um, but yeah, if you you can kind of equate it to eating, like they um, they go after things that they like. And one big thing that um, I like to tell people that's fairly simple to understand is we talk about carbon and the main carbon. Um, molecule that you'll have in a compost heap is cellulose. So that's the main, it's it's the world's most abundant polymer. Um, so we think of polymers and we think of plastics, but cellulose is a natural polymer. It's the main structural element in um, all plant tissues. And the, the fantastic thing that a lot of people don't realise is when that's broken down, and it's not, uh, only certain species can do this efficiently, but when that's broken down, it's broken down into sugar but pretty much everything likes to eat sugar. So yeah, if you've got a really active compost heap and you've got a lot of um, cellulose breakdown, you're kind of getting this continual release of sugar. And um, that's what just makes the biology explode and like everything be really active. And then they can kind of share resources amongst themselves and pass nutrients along and yeah, do all those interesting things that helps get the rest of the molecules moving as well. Yeah, and so in your PhD, were you um, investigating some micro community, or were you looking at these th- type of things under a microscope? Like, what was your your focus? Yeah, um, it's kind of it's funny talking about my PhD because it's not it's not something that I'm hugely proud of. It's not um, an amazing piece of work um, because I was looking, I was doing enzyme discovery work and looking for a new cellulase enzyme. So cellulose is the polymer and cellulase is the enzyme that breaks it down. Um, and I, I, I did that, I met my goal, I found a, an enzyme that hadn't been described by science before, um, but it was one that was like really bad at the job. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of, I mean, I guess the kind of the, reasoning behind the PhD was to find industrial uses for these kinds of things and because um, they can be used to generate biofuels and other interesting applications. But yeah, the one I found wasn't fantastic. But the reason for that was is that it's um, 
it is a complex system and the, the techniques that I was using to, to carry out that work were very reductionist. Like we were looking for a single species of bacteria and one particular enzyme produced by that one species. But really to get the best results, you've got to look at, yeah, they do work together and you've got to look at a couple of different species and how they're interacting. And we're just, we don't quite have the tools to uncover that level of complexity yet. So yeah, that's probably the most interesting thing to come out of the PhD to realize that there are really amazing things going on in compost heap or another situation where cellulose is being broken down. It's just that we don't have the right kind of like analytical tools to figure out exactly what's going on. Yeah. And you think like, you know, you know, composting is definitely getting more popular the amount of heaps that would be around the world, what could be going on in those uh, in those piles would be unique to every single different, um, you'd hope so, you know, compost uh, household bin or whatever, you know, it would be different everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Although you kind of, when you're like setting up a compost heap, you're creating a, a system that kind of sits within its own little universe. And so, and that's another thing that, results in some compost myths that like the external weather or like yeah the ambient temperature things like that don't affect it that much and especially if you've got a nice big pile where it can sustain some of its own kind of like atmosphere and things like that yeah and that like you said i've done a bit of reading on you and i heard it just in in passing that you know that little that 60 degrees heat type of you know that threshold point it's like that's fully in control by the heap it's not determined by you know us on the outside like that's completely created by itself yeah yeah and it's funny like you can buy plastic composting bins that are insulated and um cost a bit more than just a single walled compost bin and um that's you know that arguably might have a, a little bit of difference but really the best insulator is the compost itself. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that's how you get to like the rule of thumb of people saying, well, you want about a cubic meter of compost and then you've got a system that can, yeah, like sustain its own conditions. And yeah, it, it, you're generating the heat from the inside out and it's the bacteria that are doing that. And so can you tell us about, I guess, this idea, you know, where it's come from and what led to you, uh, you know, being uh, a professional composter now? Yeah, um, so that was, it. like, there was definitely the interest in all the science behind it, but it was also motivated um, by wanting to do something about climate change. So it's funny, depending on who you talk to, some people will say, oh, well, yeah, shouldn't we be recycling all of the food waste and getting it all out of the landfill? And isn't that just an obvious thing to do? And it, on the one hand, it is, but there are plenty of, kind of social and economic reasons why that hasn't um, been achieved yet. So, yeah, I think over the past few years, while I've been growing Capital Scraps as a business, um, I've kind of been investigating those different, like, yeah, how can we make composting an easier option for more people? How can we make it economically viable? Um, how can we, like, convince those people that just, aren't thinking about compost for whatever reason, that it is important that they should 
contribute, and yeah, there's lots to it. <laughs> yeah, it should be as um as hopefully one day as simple and easy as getting up and brushing your teeth. You know, you do that twice a day. It's all right. Well, this goes in this bin. This date, I pull, I pull this out. Turn it on this, you know, this night or whatever. It should be become hopefully a a and it's difficult, like you said, with the way that the world works, but um a behaviour that everyone does in their life that is just um you know like gen- generally you know you put the bins out on whatever day and. But that's a habit that you've built, and hopefully you can build a different type of habit in the form of composting your own, uh, you know, organics at home, or or even just going out and learning about it as well, so people become more aware. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's always that funny thing about forming habits, and um, it's the same thing with all the kind of daily sustainability actions that we we all want to try out and improve, and you've just got to get over that initial hump and then it it becomes super easy but I think so many people underestimate how, yeah how hard it is to start a new habit and especially if your mind's not on it and it, and yeah as I don't know been thinking a lot about mental load and kind of managing domestic chores and all those things that all that all comes into it for sure yeah, you know, people's days are getting busier and busier and busier by, you know, by the year, by the month with work and things like that. So, um, for for one thing to start a new habit, it's like where do you put it as well? Like in, in your with mopping the floors and you know, changing nappies if you do that, or if you know, lots of different things to try and to put it in there. So, could could you please um. I guess tell us about Capital Scraps, you know, how it got started and, and I guess also the process of, you know, when people sign up all the way through to uh, creating the compost that you do. Yeah, sure. And I should just say that, um, like, that's one of the good things about Capital Scraps or about any type of community composting is that if we actually do some of this together, rather than just um, managing our own individual compost heaps, um we can make it easier for each other and we can lighten the, the mental load and um, you don't, and that way, yeah, if you're, so if you're sign up to Capital Scraps, you don't have to learn how to manage a compost heap. Like we'll do that side of it for you. So yeah, there are some definite benefits. Um, but it was, it's how it's been going for over two and a half years now, but the initial stages were very experimental Um kind of perfecting our technique and process with the actual composting, but then lots of kind of trying out different things in terms of collecting up the food waste as well. And we're still we're still all the time like introducing funny little process things that will help us be more efficient. And we try to keep our service fees really low because we want as many people as possible to get involved. So um at the moment it's just a couple of dollars per week and then you get your your bucket emptied and we'll we do the composting and um one different thing is that we we do it like right in the middle of the suburbs we've got five composting hubs spread across um five different suburbs in canberra and um there's three of our composters are on public land and they they have associated public land use permits. Um, But we try to put them in visible spots so um, people just driving or or walking their dogs past it can see and kind of, yeah, get it, again, get it into people's minds and thinking, oh, yeah, composting, that's a good thing to do, just like a little reminder. Um, And... 
so we're able to do that because we do we've yeah we've perfected the composting so well we've got it really efficient like our composting hubs aren't very big they're only um three about three meters long three bay systems but we do hot composting in there and we churn through a lot of a lot of food waste um yeah that's um oh we also when we're running around and collecting up the food waste we use an electric trike predominantly for that and that's that's a really fun part of the job just like jumping on the track and it's got a motor fitted to it so you can load it up with you know 50 kilos of food waste and then trundle around the suburbs and it's a lot quicker than using a vehicle because when you think about kind of getting if you had to get out of the cab of a vehicle and and walk over and pick up a bucket and then arrange it in the back and um it's it's so much easier to jump on and off a bike um, so it really works, especially in the kind of denser suburbs. It's a really good, it's a really good way to go. And there are a bunch of um, small businesses in America operating this way as well. And yeah, it's slightly different procedures and processes used depending on the local geography and things like that. Yeah, I would say you're you are one of the more advanced um, ones with the e-bike. I've seen lots of small companies in the US who uh, got their They've got kids running around on push bikes, um, and they're, and they're helping out and volunteering as well as they're more um, uh, non profits, whereas you're like proper for purpose, which is really cool to see as well. Um, there's so many questions that you've, um, I've, I guess you've either answered or I'm eager to ask. So, well, I guess we'll start with: is the bike? How did you come across getting an, a bike like that? Like the design of it is just, it's so cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I was researching e-bikes um the so we use a christiania it's a, it's called a model light um that's the design and yeah i was just looking at all the different options and that was the one that had the biggest capacity like the big the one that you can buy off the shelf that's um can carry the most and then i learned that that model of bike has been like the design has been unchanged since 1930 Wow. It's um, yeah, it's um a bike from oh I'm gonna get this wrong but somewhere in Scandinavia I always get it wrong. Um yeah, it's been produced for many many years and they're super popular over there in Europe. Um but they're still a bit of a rare sight around here. But and they're not it's not a bike that's built for speed. Um you get because it's got a big square box on the front of it. It's not very aerodynamic, but um. It's got a newer type of motor fitted to it. It's pretty powerful. And, yeah, we can, even with really heavy loads, carry it up some of the Canberra Hills. It's pretty good. That's awesome. And then also, I guess, moving on to, um, I guess, your compost box, or, or I'm not sure what you call it, where you actually place the, um, the, f- the food waste and the autumn leaves and things like that. They they look amazing. Like I would just I want to buy one, but obviously I can't. You got you got to build it. And I'm so. Could you tell us how you got that uh, that that process initiated? Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, we've had a few people um, over the past few years get in touch and and be like, oh, can you share the design with us? Because we really love it. And or could you build one for us? They are expensive to build. Um, so that's why it kind of. Like it doesn't make sense to just put one in a backyard and use it um, occasionally. It's like it only really it's only really worth it if you're going to use it really heavily and efficiently like we do. 
Um, but yeah, they're beautiful pieces of infrastructure. Mm. And I must say, the we did a bit of research on the design of that, and our main influence was a, an operation called LA Compost in LA in California, and they're also building some really beautiful units. Um, and we made a little prototype one to start off with, and that went really well. And um, so they, at, we also insist at the moment on building them out of recycled timber. So it's like remilled hardwood timber. And so that adds to the cost. So we could probably do them a little bit cheaper, but basically they cost $6,000 to um, build, including labor. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then they, they like part of the design is the ergonomics as well. Like our staff members getting there a couple of times a week with a pitchfork and, and manage the whole setup and, um, so we've made sure that they're really easy to use as well as maintaining those, um, the good conditions for the composting. Yeah, that's awesome. They do look just like, that's like, that's obviously, yeah, like you said, it's expensive, but it's so manageable for what it's used for. You know, like I said, it's used every day, like, you know, a couple of times a week by different people. So, and, and they, I said like, you know, efficiency is key when you're spending that much money on something to, to make sure that it, that, that it works. You also yeah. sorry you go yeah and I think that it that's kind of hard to get through to people that because um, it looks it's similar in size to something you might see in a backyard and and for instance people um, often come up to us and say oh great can I just put my food scraps in here um, and we're like oh no because we we feed them on a schedule and they're really heavily managed and that's why. Um, they can get through six tons of food waste every year, each of them. Um, so that's equivalent to um, 80 or more households. Wow. So yeah, something that only takes up about the same size as three plastic compost bins, but rather than servicing one family, it can service like 80 or more families. That's such a good stat to have as well on hand because like when you're when you're having this process of selling it or even, you know, upscaling in the future, you'd be like, bang, like we can service 10 of these, we can service nearly a thousand homes, you know, like that's so cool. Like, yeah. It. So when you think of like your average suburb and we've got in Canberra, we've got a pretty high rate of backyard composting. Like people are pretty green. And if you've got the room and there's plenty of people with chickens and, and using share waste as well. So when you think of just like the other proportion of the suburb who are not yet composting, you you only need a handful of these units to service all of them. And you can pop them in a small corner in a park or on a um, extra wide road verge or something like that. And yeah, they, they work really well. And so you did mention that um, you've got five or, or six units at the moment. Um, how, how does the whole public land uh you know, if you can disclose that, like, how does that whole relationship work? Do you approach the council or? Yeah, so that was that was a was a tricky um, thing at the start uh, because it's a like as far as we know, it's a brand new idea of someone going to the authorities and saying, "Hey, there's this like road verge that nobody's doing anything with. Can we plonk a composter on it?" And um, so it's not within a community garden or anything like that. It's just out in the open and um, we're going to be putting a lot of food waste in it. So obviously that gets the authorities pretty nervous. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And so we had to do a lot of reassurance around, oh, no, we're going to we're going to make sure it's um, not only just kept tidy, the surroundings of it, but also maintained in such a way that it's not going to be attracting pests. The, the units are pest proof as well, and that kind of adds to the cost of them. Um, and the maintenance of them helps with the pest avoidance as well. But the, the main thing is the maintenance that we do to um, avoid odour. So, yeah, we're putting like six tonnes of food waste through one of these or like hundreds of kilos every week, but they don't smell. You can, I mean, maybe if you get right up to it and stick your nose right next to it, you, you might be able to tell something. And while we're working on it and when we open it up, we release a bit of odour then. Um, but, yeah, day to day, if you're walking, you jump past, um, you won't smell. And that's, I mean, any anyone who's, like, learnt about composting will know that it shouldn't smell anyway if you're doing it right. Mm. And do you, do you notice the heat coming out of it when you open it? Yeah, it's... Um, we did a we did it like a little workshop with a preschool group and it was really cute and one of the most fun things is when we open the lid and then there's always a bit of like condensation that because we just use like um like tin of roofing on the top and so there's a bit of rain that comes down and so we're able to tell the kids and say yeah our compost is rain on the inside <laughs> <laughs> That's and so then, cool. Yeah, it's a cute thing. And then we open it up and then, yeah, like steam billows out and that's especially like obvious in winter and it's, yeah, lots of fun. Have you had, I'm sure, you know, there's the science around this, um, any like combustion problems or anything like that or is it pretty safe? That was, um, yeah, that was another thing that the authorities asked us and said, um, yeah, if you're putting autumn leaves and things in there and, you know, Canberra's pretty bushfire prone so they have to ask that question but um, that comes back to, well, we can't, um, we operate high efficiency composting, so it has to be moist. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's moist all the time. So mm-hmm. one of our composters is not in a perfect situation and it, get, it does get a little bit dry. And so that one we do have to occasionally water. But yeah, there's um, the, and, like the big commercial composting heaps that have been known to catch a light, like that's that's a slightly different situation because they're so big as well. We're kind of we're kind of perfectly sized. Like we're big enough to be just as efficient as those large operations, but we're not so big that yeah, the the heat problem gets away from us. It sounds so amazing. Like, I just want to come down and just, like, stand right next to one and get amongst it. It's so cool. Um, and so, obviously, this is, say, this is on a verge in, you know, the middle of, like, on a bridge or something. Um, what's your, like, uh, I guess the turnover rate of, say, my rotten apple to a compost? And then how do you then extract that from the unit? Yeah, so um, pretty much uh, it's, a, it's under a month. So... With, with some exceptions, we've got someone who keeps on giving us whole coconuts, like the <laughs> shell and everything. They take a little bit longer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, mo- most of your average scraps will um, – it'll all be finished off in about four weeks. But our um, – so our composters are networked together and the food waste kind of within one composter, there's three bays – and, and we turn, we keep on turning stuff over really frequently 
And so we basically in our units do the pre-composting or the initial stages. And then every now and then we'll take it and we move stuff between the different composters as well. But basically food scraps are in there for a couple of weeks. And then every now and then we'll take a, a large chunk of the compost out and put it somewhere else. And it can be anywhere, just in a pile. And that's when we have the second stage, the maturing stage. Um, and so you want to leave that for at least two weeks at that point, and you can leave it longer if you've got the room. Um, and then you end up with a, like there'll still be a few chunks. There might be um, some mango pits or some twigs or other things. So it'll be like your chunky homestyle compost, but if the nitrogen will have sorted itself out and it'll be ready to, and especially the stuff that we generate is perfect if you're putting in a new garden bed and you put it at the bottom and then you put some potting mix or some other soil on top and then say in a short period of time it'll be fully decomposed mm. that's so awesome and especially if you know like such a sh- you know a month can go by pretty quick and then for to, to see that change visibly would be so um like rewarding as well because the amount of effort that people don't understand like like you said it's not just putting you can't just put your food waste in here and forget about it. Like you need to turn it, you need to, you know, apply the right carbon nitrogen ratio. Like, um, it's a lot of time and effort, but it's so worth it to, to, um, you know, the amount of greenhouse gases that you'd be reducing, um, as well as providing community benefit for, you know, education, awareness, like everything. Like it's such a, like you said, I think you said it earlier, it's like, it seems like we should just be pulling everything out of landfill and putting it in these, you know, units, but it's just not that um, that viable or popular yet. So I uh, just want to congratulate you on, you know, how well you're doing. It's so cool to see, um, you know, where you've come from to where you're going. And, like, I could see these all over Australia, you know. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah. And I love talking to there's some other really great community composting setups around the country, and I've um, reached out and talked to a few of them and um, whether they're operating in a community garden or whatever it is. Um, yeah, some, some really good efforts going on and um, kind of some, yeah, some recognition that you might need some different systems in place depending on who you're trying to reach and, and yeah, what the demographics of your town are or, yeah. Yeah, there's lots of things to consider. So so is there anything that, you know, so do you only collect um, organics, like green waste, like no dairy and meat? Is that right? Um, that is the, the one limitation of our system because we, yeah, that odour problem and because we do it out on the streets and in public, um, we can't accept meat. Um, a bit of dairy is okay and, like, cooked food and oils and stuff is, is fine, but it's actually the way that, meat itself breaks down chemically that produces um particular chemicals that are just really stinky (laughs) um so and we actually notice it like every every now and then we'll get a new um subscriber and they haven't quite got the memo about meat or maybe like their kids put a salami sandwich in um without mum noticing or something but we'll notice it (laughs) yeah because we'll be able to kind of smell it out sniff it out yeah um yeah, so, and we, um, we've we talked to lots of people like local government about, oh, it's a shame that we have that limitation, but 
I'd like to be kind of optimistic about it and think, well, can we get to the point where we can source separate all of the food scraps and then meat separately? And then there are some really fantastic processing options for just the meat stuff. So, but then some people are, yes, maybe the Australian mindset of like, oh, I don't know, people get sick of separating things out and putting them in different categories. But it, it would be so worth it. Yeah, the too hard basket, and it goes back to our conversation earlier about behaviour, about like, you know, all right, just put your organics here, get get the memo through, this is where meat and dairy or just meat it goes, and we can use that for, you know, animal feed or for, you know, gelatin, whatever it wants to be used for in when the time comes. Because um, like you said, there are, um, I guess, places for that waste to go, even like anaerobic digestion or something like that, um, when if it's available to the the local community you wouldn't want to be transporting that type of the you know six tons worth of meat around that's rotten but um uh that like you said there is places for it to go and hopefully we can get those initiatives which like you said do cost you know um to, to get them running up as uh, alongside organics yeah yeah and that's another thing actually that um the like the government schemes um because we are going to have a government food waste collection scheme here in Canberra. And so some people think, oh, well, it's funny. Why, why are you starting a business? Why wouldn't you just leave government to do it? But there's, I mean, first of all, the way that we do it brings a lot of additional environmental benefits. So that's definitely worthwhile. But there, there are also some economic benefits as well. And People just, it's funny, everyone just forgets about that and think, oh, yeah, the government's providing this service and it's just for free. And it's like, well, no, it's not free. Like, we're paying for it in our rates or other fees and things. So, <laughs> yeah, it's actually within all of our interest to think about how to do this properly on the large scale. Yeah, and even I think even people with disbelief or, you know, disconnection from their government over the last couple of years would even promote them to source a local business for their for their their food waste or their or their options with anything in terms of the clothes they buy, you know, where they get their milk, where they take their food scraps. I think a lot of people will be transitioning into, you know, sourcing their own type of, um, I guess, connection to the community, which is like would be obviously in Canberra where you live would be capital scraps. Like this is why I take mine here. I don't actually, ha- I don't pay a dollar a week for my green bin for the council. I actually give my stuff to Brooke and her drivers. So... Um, I think, yeah, I, I wouldn't be worried in, in your position at all, I don't think. Ooh. Yeah, and there's um, there's definitely things that local governments can do. I, I think some governments are considering um, rebates and, and things like that to kind of even out the playing field and, and allow kind of the large the large businesses as well as the small up-and-coming businesses and, and definitely the... I mean, we, we call ourselves a social enterprise because we're... We're mission-led, we're, we're doing it all for the environmental benefit. And so there's some interesting things going on Australia-wide about, yeah, how do we encourage more social enterprises or more small businesses that are, are operating for purpose? Mm. I think also things will transition that way in the future as well to, you know, what does your, regardless of what you sell or what you provide, what does your business do for the world or for the sustainable development goals or how are you aligned with this initiative rather than just saying we just sell this to earn money and buy a car that we like, you know? (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, that's because there's more and more like, yeah, I've seen some of the stats on conscious consumerism. And yeah, people are getting savvy. They're like, and they're even starting to ask a few more questions and go, hang on, is this actually greenwashing? Or is it really legit? Or, you know, what are the actual benefits? What's the impact? And that's fantastic. Like people should be asking those questions. Yeah, it's great to see people becoming a bit more aware of, you know, their impact on on the world. Now, one hard question is that I think, you know, even I, when I was doing my coffee collection and I felt, you know, I'm not much of a salesman. I'd rather just, oh, this is a good thing to do, so let's do it. But obviously you have a cost involved with your service. So, like, how do you convince people that, that this is, like, a business and not just, like, this is this is not Brooks Goodwill Project, even though it's really good for and it's a promoting and it's sustainable and it's a social enterprise that we still need money to provide this. Is it, has that been a hard message to communicate to, to people? Yeah, I think because I kind of started it very, like it's always been very community focused um, and we, we, we love doing our community events and um, getting, and we've got so many lovely volunteers who help us out as well. But at the same time, it is a business and there are, considerable costs and our biggest hurdle has been kind of marketing and promotions and we're only just now getting to the stage where we can spend a bit of money on on that kind of stuff and it, it's critical it's like you can't just expect people to because if we re, if we relied on word of mouth alone which we did get some really fantastic recommendations from our current subscribers but it's just too slow so um yeah we've got a We've got to get the word out there that this is an option. Like it's not so much, I don't think we have to do too much to sell it. Like it's just a really convenient service um, that makes sense and makes sense environmentally, but just letting people know that it's an option. Um, and so that's why that's why we are a for-profit for purpose um, so that we can get a bit of um, investment and backing and and to enable us to do more and to have a bigger impact. Um, we've got an exciting thing. We're going to, we, we use an electric van for some of our um, moving heavier bits of compost around. And we're finally going to get that um, all painted up and um, with our branding and, and have it be super colourful so that when we drive around on the streets and um, we've been really grateful that a couple of other small local businesses have been able to sponsor that um so yeah they're also like they do what they do for climate action um so yeah we're all trying to do really good things um but also provide products and services to people um and we also like it's funny i've got a got a new staff member who just came on board and they it was someone who came to us initially and said oh, I want to help out as a volunteer and I'm happy to run around and collect up buckets for you and that kind of thing but it what we're selling to people is the reliability and like yeah your bucket's going to get collected every week without fail um and it's and it's funny there are little funny things that can go wrong and that you've got to pay attention to and so it's just not the kind of work that can be done by volunteers in our experience so yeah we have our staff um and that's growing which is exciting um 
including yeah this new staff person that were kind of they were willing to volunteer but I'm like no I need to know that you're you know going to be available at certain times and that you have to comply with our procedures and, and that kind of thing so they've come on board as staff instead which is fantastic but yeah that's um, so at the same time we're kind of balancing that out with that, the efficiency of how we operate so we're still keeping we're still keeping those service fees really really low so yeah i don't know it'll it all just works but there's a lot of i don't know i'm always pouring over the financials and looking and doing some forecasting and business plans and all of that stuff that you have to do um but that's that's how you get it um working and working at scale as well mm. yeah it's that i think it's the the hard part for anyone who's as passionate as yourself about something like this is making that all those business decisions where you just like you just, you don't care you just want it to work and it's great but then you obviously have to require that that funding to for it to to realize its potential which is um so it's just like a cost off, it's like a trade, isn't it? It's like, all right, we'll do this and we'll be able to do, you know, two bins this year or three bins in the next year. And it's like, especially if it's a profit for purpose or a social enterprise, it's it's definitely worth the, the headaches of spreadsheets, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. Like we, um, we yeah, we invested by getting the our van, which is 100% electric and we could have got something for close to half the price, but then of course we'd have to pay for petrol. So mm. you've got to factor that in. But, um, yeah, in the end, like the, the driving the electric van is around is so much fun that it like that helps offset the cost of it as well. Um, and so that's like just an example of one of the investments that we've put in the business to, to keep to those, um, yeah, keep up with those environmental values mm. um as well as running the business efficiently that's great to hear have you experienced any limitations during the time of the virus it's you, know, you said you've been going for two and a half years that's pretty much the entire time uh the pandemic's been going because i know that canberra was pretty like covid free for a really long time so did you experience much change or diff- difficulty yeah, we've. Um, I think fingers crossed, we've got through it okay. Um, it's been really stressful. I'm, I'm sure every other um, small business or even large businesses as well has. Like, it's just been a really stressful time, mostly because of, it, like, you're always reliant on your workforce. So if your workforce is yeah at risk of having to isolate or yeah being out for weeks at a time or um, that kind of thing it's just that's when everything can fall apart so but all of my employees have been really sensible <laughs> people we're all really really careful um yeah so we've but at the same time that's it's held us back like we have all these plans to expand and service more suburbs and do more interesting things and we're starting to do a bunch of um apartment blocks um that finally now we can get into but all of that has kind of been on hold um because we just weren't sure about ongoing lockdowns and things like that so it's yeah it's really great to see most of the country being vaccinated and and things looking a bit better Mm. 
if I was down there, Brooke, I'd sign up straight away. I'd be like, yep, I'm going to put my Greek yogurt bin out the front and I'm also going to be driving around as well. So I've got, you got my support if I was, if I was down there. Yeah, thanks. Um, what other challenges have you experienced so far in this, I guess, this whole business journey, you know, regardless of the, the virus? Um, I think a lot of communication uh, kind of hurdles to get over. Uh, it is, for instance, when it comes to the environmental benefits, it's not so straightforward. I mean, there are plenty of people that, haven't yet got the message that food waste in landfill is a problem. Um, even um, people that I knew a few years back would um, be surprised and be like, oh, but doesn't doesn't food waste compost in the landfill? So what's the difference? Um, so, yeah, there are plenty of people out there that just don't understand. Like, it is pretty technical when you think about, oh, when it goes to the landfill, it generates heaps of methane, but if we put it into a well-managed compost heap, then it doesn't. And people are like, oh, why? Isn't it the same thing? And so that's when you get into the nitty-gritty of it. Um, but I think also the things like the people who do realise that composting is an amazing thing, but they're used to backyard composting where you can kind of get away with just um, as a single household dumping stuff into a plastic bin and not really maintaining it or managing it. And so then there's that preconception of, oh, well, that's not very much work, so why do I have to pay you? That's not much work. But, like, it comes back to, oh, no, we have to do this high-efficiency method to to make it worthwhile. Otherwise, we because um, basically we're saving on land area. Like, we don't we actually don't own any land as a business. And so, yeah, we just use these little pockets of land that like a couple of community gardens have been really great and let us put our composters on their land. And then, like I said, public land. Um, but yeah, so it comes back to all these business considerations. Um, and then, yeah, just like having having the reliable staff and and I, I think that's a, a main problem with all of the waste industry. Like you do every, it's a pretty regular event that you hear waste management staff going on strike <laughs> um, because they're underappreciated. Like, yeah. no, like apart from maybe a six pack of tinnies on your rubbish bin once a year, you don't really think about them. Um, but they're doing they're doing fantastic work for our environment. So yeah, we should we should all think a little bit more about waste management, I think. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And like even waste like, I guess it's the whole title of waste management and then like separation and, and you know, um uh deciding where this you know, like even now I do like the we've got containers for change in Queensland, we've got the soft plastics for coals, like I've got like a um it's called a composter from Bunnings. I met the guy and I bought his one, um, and so that's like a worm farm, basically. And it's like, you know, what's next? What else can I, you know, like, be responsible for? Um, uh, even, like, I've always thought about, like, I've got heaps of paper waste, and it's like I'd love to shred that and give it to, like, the vet or the pound where they have the dogs and the cat in the glass, you know, like, things like yeah. that. Yeah. So, yeah, so um, there's so many different things that people don't realise, and obviously food, and I think the household bin is definitely... Um, the largest or n- number one impact of, for sure for the waste production of a household. 
Yeah, I know that it, there's actually just those two main things that you mentioned, like getting doing something with your food waste, um, yeah, like composting itself or giving it to someone else to compost, and then recycling your soft plastics. If you do those two things, all of a sudden, you don't have to take your bin out every single week so it's not going to be full. Mm. You can probably, like depending on the size of your household, maybe only once a month or less. Mm. And um, yeah, and there you go. You've got like an instant win in your mental load. You don't have to think, wait, is it bin night? Because it's not so urgent anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so cool. Um, I wanted to ask about the, I guess, the people to pledge is that kind of like part of the business model as well? So I know you got, is it Hague Park or something like that? So would you expand, or first of all, tell us about that model, but then also is that a really good opportunity to expand to different suburbs compared to spending six grand on a box? Um, oh, yeah. So the pledges is, um, that's just our way of doing a little bit of market research, basically. Um Anyone who, so we're only servicing a few suburbs in Canberra at the moment, but if anywhere else in Canberra can get in touch with us and just say, I'm in this suburb, um, I would love to see you come here. Um, and we, we wait till there's 50 households in a suburb and then we'll, like, then we're ready to go. Then it makes economic sense for us and we can roll out a service there. But it's been really slow, so um, I don't know. We might, we might not, we might just start expanding and, and do what makes sense. Uh, because I think people people don't seem to want to put their name down for something if it's not something concrete and something like it's not. They don't know if it's ever actually going to happen. Mm, mm. So yeah, I don't know if that's worked so well for us, but it. Interestingly, New York City did the same thing. Um, we didn't copy it off them, but they um, they had a city service for collecting up food waste in Manhattan um, that got stopped at the start of the pandemic, and they said it was like an austerity measure. They just couldn't afford to do the food waste recycling anymore. Um, but then they just, like in the past three or four months or something, have started it up again. But they did the same thing. They said, okay, who wants it? Let us know and we'll start it in the areas where there's demand. Um, and it makes sense when you think about it. It's like why roll it out to absolutely everyone if you're not sure if everyone's going to participate? Mm. Yeah, you're not going to spend six grand on a bin and, and put it in a place where there's 10 houses who don't you know, who are all meat eaters or something like that. Like to understand your target market and the need for it is like, especially in a business, um, not just a business, but then again, for things not to go to waste, like all the material and all the, the time and money and labour put into building something and then putting it there and going, oh, no, we're going to move this now, we don't need it. It's like, oh, geez, that's a bit of a pain. But so that, cause that's really obviously been a super smart way to know who, who does want to in your business. But you said, like, we're ready to expand already, so we're kind of not going to wait anyhow. Yeah, yeah. And, and we know that it's, like, we've not done enough yet just to get the word out there. So it's kind of, I think the pledges are coming about through word of mouth. And that, and so that means they're really patchy, but it's interesting. Like there was um, one really new suburb in Canberra and they had like a really active kind of Facebook group because 
they're a brand new suburb and everybody wanted to talk about what what was going to happen in the like new facilities and things and so someone there said oh there's this composting option and that just like spread instantly and then there was like a couple of dozen people who put their hand up and said yeah come here so you know if we if we see that happening a few more times then that'll give us that kind of business certainty that yeah we can invest and and open up a service in a new area yeah partner with the building company and getting on all the new development sites bang there you go that's awesome yeah that's so cool I also really like the design of your website. So, like, it's so simple, like, very beautiful, gets the message across straight away, like, it's and it's got you on the bike there or, or someone. It's it's very, very uh, well done. So uh, I know that's, you know, quite new as well, I think, on the, I saw it on the Instagram, so it looks great. Yeah, yeah, we got a, we got a rebrand done. So we had, like, a stand-in logo that was, like, a, a funny little thing that I did myself and I'm not a graphic designer, so... It's, it's looking a bit more schmick and hopefully hopefully people will still recognize that we're still we're still in it for the local community like we've not gone all corporate or yeah <laughs> but but yeah it it does help to show that we're legit as well like um yeah it's something that's properly supported and um do, doing things right and to a to a good standard yeah also people that it's, it's how in how in five seconds because they know what you do. And then also if they see the sponsor of other local companies, or oh, I go to that cafe or I go to that running shop, cool. All right, let's see what this is about type of thing. So, Yeah. Now, I've only got a few a few more uh, minutes to go, Brooke, so i just got a, a few last questions. Um, what else is happening in your life, you know, outside of, you know, Capital Scraps and, you know, start of the year now, we're 20 days in, What's um, what else has been going on? Yeah, so I actually only um, run Capital Scraps half the week um, or, yeah, spend half of my mental effort. <laughs> um, and I have another job which is at a small local charity. It's called Sea Change. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's nothing to do with the ocean. It's um, S-E-E stands for Society, the Economy and the Environment. And this is an organisation that's been around in Canberra for quite a while um, but there's always really interesting things going. Basically, they just they exist to enhance any sustainability efforts in Canberra, and so they've had um, like long-running programs on sustainable house tours. And at the moment, there's a bunch of repair cafes, and we're supporting um, the local community toolbox, which is like a tool share option and yeah, all these things to help people cut out some of their consumption habits and cut out their waste and um, have a look at their energy usage and yeah, lots of really and we try to make it fun. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Like that's like you know just literally targeting anything that's sustainable. Bang! Look at this great new idea. Let's facilitate it. Let's try and get up and running in the community. Whether like is whether it be like you said like a tool cafe or you know. Uh, a place where you can rent this. So you're going to go camping. Here's a bunch of camping gear that you don't have to buy, use it, bring it back, things like that. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah. We also we manage the Canberra Electric Bike Library, which is um, you can borrow an electric bike for free, although um, we don't like to shout about that one too much because there's already a massive waiting list. <laughs> yeah, okay, wow. Yeah. yeah, there's plenty of e-bikes now here on the Gold Coast. We did have one 
company, the Orange Ones, uh, a long time ago. That came from Europe, and then they kind of disappeared. And now we've got a red one, um, and they're, like, so popular. And it's not even, like, they're not even hard to look at or, like, you know, people worry about, oh, it's just, like, trash in the street, like a bike. And it's like, hang on, it's a bike. Like, get over it. Like, it's not like it's a pile of rubbish um, in terms of, like, making the city look or the town, you know, look shabby or clean or whatever who cares if there's a bike lane around like it's and it's standing up and it's you know whatever so yeah and yeah. hey if it cuts down some traffic on the roads then fantastic yeah that's it and my very last question brooke which i asked to all my guests is is what is an ideal day for brooke clinton so this is you can do anything so you can snowboard in, in the mountains and then go to work or you can lay by the beach or you know if you had an ideal day like what would it look like yeah, if only Canberra was a little closer to the coast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah, maybe I'll... Yeah, maybe in the future it might be easier. But definitely start the day with some composting. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, I do still, even though I've got staff now who do a lot of the heavy lifting for me, just going out of a morning to one of the compost heaps, opening it up, like, getting a face full of steam and just, like, yeah all the texture of everything and seeing how things are going, breaking down. It is like something just really enjoyable. Um, and then, and even if it's winter, I tend to like to do that in the morning because then you can get all kind of filthy and then you come back and, and have your shower and then have a cup of tea and, and relax after a bit of like kind of reward yourself after some physical labor. And then, yeah, I don't know. It'd be lovely to go to the beach. I did not like, in the last two years, I've not got to the beach as much as <laughs> I've wanted because it's been, yeah, we've all been stuck in Canberra. But, um, yeah, and maybe, yeah, right, riding a bike around as well. That's always, always a good thing to do. And then, I don't know, probably just watching the sunset with my husband. It's very corny, but... <laughs> no, it's nice. It's your, it's your day. You do whatever you want. Yep. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I, I love that... Um, that you know, what you just said there, but, you know, getting all steamy in the morning, that's really cool, you know, like getting out there, getting the hard work done and then and relaxing and really enjoying, you know, I guess it makes you, makes you feel fulfilled. What You're helping the environment, you know, regardless if you can't see it, you know, in 10, 5 to 10 years' time, we'll be able to know if, of what, you know, what people have done in terms of climate action to know um, that it's kept us being able to go outside and go do things and... You know, you know what I mean? Like, people don't realise the, the long-term effect or how close it is as well. So uh, thanks for all the hard work that you are doing, you know, to try and, and reduce the impact. Yeah, thank you. And, yeah, thanks for the chat. No, no worries. Thank you so much for coming along this afternoon. It's been great. To finish off, as always, thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it, as this is a passion of mine. Don't forget to leave a review. It helps other people find the show. And please share this episode on your social media or tell a friend to continue spreading the message of cooking goals. You can sign up to our weekly email by clicking the link in the description of this episode and follow our Instagram at the Cooks Community. Until next time, remember to breathe.